Welcome to Making Waves. In July 2018, NASA hosted the installation Psychoactive Music by Aaron Labay. In Psychoactive Music, the installation listener wears noise-canceling headphones and an EEG reader in order for the brainwaves of the listener to determine compositional features of the music he or she is hearing. While in South River, Aaron gave an artist talk about Psychoactive Music and also about the Lucid Creation and Research Project, which evolved from the software Uh, made for psychoactive music. The Lucid Project is a member of the Transmedia Zone, an innovative media incubator at Ryerson University. In the audience were some of Aaron's collaborators on the Lucid Project, Gabriela Chiara and Riel Sumpton. Today I am presenting my artist talk here at NASA North uh, Media Arts Centre. I'm Aaron LeBay and I'm a Toronto-based new media artist and I'm here to talk to you about yesterday's exhibition piece, Psychoactive Music. So today I'm going to be talking a little bit about the experimental approach to audio engineering that uh, took to create this project. And um, I'm going to talk a little bit about its history and also where it is kind of developing and growing today. So first and foremost, a little bit more detail. Although yesterday's piece was experienced as a single artwork, um, Psychoactive Music has actually become a larger project, uh, kind of a ubiquitous new new media piece um, that is uh, essentially designed a set of music protocols um, around enhancing the music listening experience and integrating it, it has integrated itself into public installations, uh, immersive spaces, and now actually an app platform. So the project has actually been a full-time endeavor for about three years now, and I'm happy to say that the concept has grown to becoming uh, an actual full-blown studio now, uh, revolving around these concepts, uh, you know, the foundations that we've built, and um, you know, I'll kind of explain more of that as we go. So the project actually had a very humble beginning. It was actually my uh, third year major project for my BFA. Um, To give you a little background, I actually did an audio engineering degree first uh, before doing my BFA. So I just kind of carried over the research that I had built from that program into um, my BFA. So the research was a little bit advanced, but I really used, you know, the the university's, um, you know, resources and, you know, the faculty to kind of help develop the project. So it all began with a research question. And the research question was, how, how can we modify music um, so, it ha- so we have the ability to in- directly influence brainwaves um, in a measurable time frame and um, something that's completely non-invasive? So to give you an idea of an invasive brainwave uh, stimulation, there's like electro-stimulation, there's ETNS. And kind of my thesis was, could we just use audio um, you know, and, and optimize the modern music listening experience to actually, you know, you know, help cure the brain or help biohack the brain and allow users to um, reach desired mental states in a measurable time frame, as opposed to, you know, music therapy or something which could take weeks or months or, you know, something of that nature. So uh, I started with a lot of exhaustive research and um, one day I kind of stumbled upon a scientific article, something that uh, was done in a medical setting. And they found that um, binaural beats, which is an audio phenomenon, was used uh, and they were able to increase um, alpha wave behaviors in the brain um, 
in small time frames. So you know, users were experiencing binaural beats for as little as 10 minutes, and they actually had a lot of EEG readings that were showcasing um, enhanced activity in the brain. Uh, alpha waves, to give you a little background, are the uh, brain waves associated with relaxation, with um, you know, with restoration. It's they're very healthy for people who have anxiety disorders or depression, um, and these sounds are. You know, the, binaural, the binaural beat sounds are very powerful and they're able to actually stimulate these, these brain waves. So this was you know, a huge breakthrough. Although binaural beats had been around for several years, um, it wasn't until 2015 that they actually were able to bring it into the medical setting. And um, these you know, breakthroughs were made in seeing that it could actually be applied into like a medical experience. So to give you a little, a little explanation of how they work, uh, binaural beats are actually an audio illusion. Um, it, it occurs when you uh, play two frequencies uh, of different uh, hertz ranges in either ear, and the brain actually um, combines those two tones and it perceives a third tone, which is um, inaudible. So for an example, in this case, 10 hertz would not be a sound that we would normally be able to hear. But because we're actually playing two tones of exact same amplitude in each ear, the, the brain, the auditory cortex, perceives this 10 hertz tone. And what that does is um, it actually synchronizes the brain waves with that tone, be being that it's within that range. So brain waves exist within a 2 hertz to 32 hertz frequency range. So um, and that kind of th there's behaviors that are associated with that range as well. So 32 hertz is very active brainwave behavior, and 2 hertz is like sleeping, completely unconscious. And um, what what occurs when you actually are able to play tones that the ears that the brain can hear within that range is the rest of the brain waves kind of synchronize with it and you're able to stimulate uh, dominant states. So if a user is at 32 hertz, they're very, very active, and they're played 10 hertz binaural beats for a long period of time, the brain will eventually sync with that, and the user will actually feel calm, they'll feel relaxed. You know, they'll get a lot of physiological effects out of that. So this phenomenon is kind of similar to the combination tone uh, phenomenon, which like, you know, occurs with organs and those types of instruments. You actually hear frequencies that aren't being played. Um, and this is essentially the same thing, but very low frequency. So does it, have, does it have to be these particular frequencies? Like, could you have, uh, you know, three thirty and? 3 yeah, you could. It, it, it's better. The lower you go, the better it is. Um, being that the brain is perceiving a low frequency, it's better to do, um, you know, obviously within the auditory spectrum, but something lower end. Mm -hmm. uh, the rule of thumb is it has to be under a thousand. I think that's the rule. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. Because well, the, 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 the frequencies will smear. Yeah, yeah. Well, those they'll smear together, and and it, it but like. Mm -hmm. I find with like 100 hertz to like 300 hertz, you get a really nice, strong uh, vibration out of that. Um, and obviously, you got to work with your technology. So headphones, uh, you got to assume consumer grade. So you know, most headphones like that are consumer grade. Sometimes they don't even go lower than like 100 hertz, right? Like, so um, so I, I tend to like work that, with. That's the happy medium. Yeah, medium. yeah, it's the happy medium that sounds the best, that works on all peripherals, and also allows the user to get the most stimulation out of it. Um, now the big problem with these um, these and other psychoacoustic stimuli that are similar to this is they're not the easiest things to listen to. So you know audiophiles like us, you know, will listen to these things leisurely and we don't even care. We like it, right? But most of humanity will listen to these things for a couple of brief moments and they'll be tired of listening to it. They'll, you know, it, it's not enjoyable and it actually counteracts the physiological benefits because people, you know, will will not enjoy it as much. Uh, so. So yeah, so my biggest, my big challenge in this project was I wanted to get the same effects, the same stimuli in music, um, but completely 
incognito, something that people could actually listen to leisurely, you know, on the bus, on the train, in their everyday life, and something that, you know, our grandmothers would actually enjoy listening to, right? So my thesis was, could we combine this stimuli with, you know, our favorite music, our, you know, the music that we actually enjoy, that we, you know, have these really nostalgic and powerful relationships with, and still get this powerful, you know, effect out of it. So, you know, that's kind of where things started. Um, and this was, of course, not easy. This was a huge challenge um, because most of these tones were not, you know, in key structures or, you know, in, in melodic contours. So, you know, they naturally sounded awful. So it took months and months of tinkering. It took, you know, hundreds of hours in the studio of playing around with, you know, audio processing tools, equalization, um, even spatializing through like 360 spectrums to try to mask these tones within music. But it, it was definitely not an easy process. Um, but eventually, you know, I, I created this algorithm that, you know, did a really great job of tricking the ears, essentially, into not noticing them while still getting the same stimulation out of the user. Um, and this is kind of where my third year project ended, is I created a 360 speaker piece that perfectly masked a four, four hertz stimulation. But the big problem with that was, I was like, okay, we have, I have it working in five speakers, but now you, know, you can't bring five speakers around with you. My biggest challenge was then to transport that to a headphone experience. And what I found through this research was spatialization was one of the biggest keys to actually masking these tones. When you create a wider spectrum than stereo, you know, the ears focus on like only certain things and you're able to actually hide these tones with, like, within the spectrum a lot easier um, while still stimulating the brain you know, in the background. But, you know, my biggest challenge was like, how do I then transport that to headphones, you know, and I also found that, you know, interactivity was going to be important because, you know, somebody who's dominant at 30 hertz and someone who's dominant at 15 hertz, they're going to need different amounts of these stimuli in order to get to these optimized states. So this is kind of where the next step had to be built. So what we ended up doing is I was able to eventually, you know, through binaural encoding, get stuff into a headphone feed. And then I started to kind of experiment into other reigns, right? So I, I teamed up with some massage therapists. Um, we started to develop the practice into becoming something that could be integrated into other parts of life aside from being in a recording studio. And we got a lot of success through that. We had a lot of really great user experiences. Um, but the next big step was certainly going to be the interactivity. And, um, you know, being that I was in a BFA program, I also had to figure out a way to make this something that would be viable in the gallery, something that would actually, you know, uh, create some sort of spectacle to bring people in so they could really test it on a large audience of people. Um, so this is when, you know, I started to like ideate on my fourth year thesis project. And um, eventually this is what I got, which was this, you know, large dome enclosure um, and the piece slash project Lucid began. And Lucid essentially is a, um, a new media um, transmedia project that incorporates psychoactive music in an applied sense. So it takes psychoactive music and it, and it puts it into different aspects of our everyday lives. Um, so I, the first one that I wanted to do was you know, the gallery environment. So I, you know, we ended up creating this large environment that was built around the psychoactive music core that added on a visual stimuli and you know this kind of pod to like separate users from you know the rest of the gallery and allow people to have these like really intimate experiences. Um, mind you, you know the process of getting there was you know a huge headache. <laughs> um, but the big challenge with Lucid was now to add that level of inter interactivity. So we had the headphones working, we had all of that built in, the music was being masked, everything was really lovely, but the interactivity was a big challenge. And this is when we started to integrate uh, EEG technology. Um, utilizing uh, essentially reading the user's brain and seeing 
where they are in the spectrum and how much stimuli they're going to need in order to bring them to that optimized state. Um, and that took a lot of programming, a lot of work, uh, some very, very mild artificial intelligence, nothing too intense at this point. Um, but that's kind of, you know, this was the package for my fourth year thesis. Um, so there was a lot of challenges along the way. Um, so the, uh, the biggest challenge, of course, was creating this structure so that, you know, I could like bring this psychoactive music to the public forum. Um, but aside from that, there was a lot of audio issues that I was still working out as well. So, you know, another, you know, several hundreds and hundreds of hours in the studio trying to figure out how to optimize this experience so that, you know, users could experience it, you know, in headphones, like to be like really, really great while having interactivity, which was difficult because now it had to have modular music, um, nonlinear music, which was a huge advancement to my composition practice. I mean, the most composers spend their entire lives working on a timeline, you know, this is from start to finish. Um, so this is really when I was opening up to trying out things in an interactive sense. I was very lucky to be paired up at this point with uh, David Rokeby, who is my thesis advisor, and he is an expert on interactivity with audio, and he really helped shape the project at this point. Um, and he taught me that, you know, like take the linear aspects out of, you know, an audio experience or any gallery experience. And that really kind of learned or reshaped how I thought about audio and how we compose audio. Uh, now I can't even go back, to be honest. I'm very much like mm -hmm. in this nonlinear compositional, you know, jive. And, you know, it was great. There was a lot of other things that we started to learn at this point too. Uh, one that I, I found was uh, ambience was a big thing that helped with the experiences, um, like nature ambiences in particular. Obviously now that we're working in a binaural soundscape, we had to buy a special microphone. So I ended up using this 3DO microphone. Um, only to learn that there's better ambisonic microphones out there, but what was the name of it again? The 3DO, it's called. 3DO. Yeah, um, it's great. It's very, it's very binaural. Like it, it removes the need to encode binaurally as well. Um, now I'm trying, like we're trying to get this like ambisonic, full ambisonic microphone. But it's a great unit. I mean, it was also within my thesis price tag at that point. Um, but it, it really added a lot to the piece, right? People started to lose themselves a lot easier and. Um, what, what took 10 minutes to get people into therapeutic states, now we were getting like four, right? Like people were, you know, really in, like getting into these dream states almost um, through these very short experiences. Now, the other issue that we were having is I ended up creating a new tuning structure for psychoactive music because um, I found that 440 was having difficulties getting the stimuli to blend with it. Um, so this new tuning structure, which was very easy to work with in electronic music, so you just reprogram the instrument. But then when we started to use acoustic instruments, it became this massive challenge, right? Like, instead of having to retune a piano that I had no authority over, I couldn't really tell the school to retune this, this piano that other people use, we had to get creative. So, um, as you see here on the right, there's this picture of, like, you know, seen the amount of microphones on this piano, and we essentially did is, like, sampled the entire instrument, and then on each tone we had, or each key, we had to detune it at a different ratio because they all had to go to different ratios. And I mean, I, I went in very naively thinking that I could just do like a pitch tuner on all of the tones, but you know, each frequency has a different ratio. And so it was, yeah, yeah, it was very, very complicated. Um, I mean, it was great. I, like this would have only worked in a university setting because the studio would have cost us like $10,000 for the amount of time that we used it. But it was a great exploration because I learned a lot about how acoustic instruments work. Um, I mean, I think in the future we would love to have like a an orchestra that we could just permanently, you know, detune. But um, but it was it was really it was a really enriching experience, and we learned a lot through the process. But all of, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, the rain that you had in the 
installation? Yes, yeah. So the rain, I was actually recorded at a cottage uh, in Havelock, which is near Peterborough. Um, we, uh, my studio, um, like we spent a weekend going over there and like getting all these ambiences. It was a really great experience for, for everybody. But I mean, it, it's a nice excuse to go out in nature. Um, but it's also, you know, recording all of these, like the big thing that we do with this project is like, I'm a big stickler on samples. We refuse to use samples. We, we record everything ourselves. I like to have things at like, you know, 192 kilohertz mainly because there's a lot of modulation that happens um, after the fact. And I'm trying to avoid the loss of quality. And I, you know, it's really nice to be able to actually record your own ambiences because then you can actually think of it as a part of the composition process, right? Like you can choose, you know, which ones fit which moods. And, you know, I, I mean, that's something that I hope that we continue. Um, and I think that a big issue with people who are making therapeutic music is they they skip that process. They, they go right to like, I'm going to buy some samples online and then, you know, deal with that. So I think that I mean, maybe that's just the audiophile in me, but like, I'm, I'm a big stickle on that kind of stuff. And I think every audio engineer really should think that way. Um, so, you know, through this process of, you know, working with all these different instruments and this exploration, you know, it, it just, it took a long time to get everything syncing together. Essentially, this, like a four minute piece took, you know, three months to create. We've now streamlined the process and there's now like protocols that we follow, but the exploration into getting there was, was certainly a long period of time, several months, um, but eventually, you know, as fate would have it, we finished. Um, so we created the Lucid installation, which now had the, you know, current psychoactive music protocols that you heard uh, yesterday. I mean, we've improved some things since then, but essentially it became a polished algorithm um, and it was integrated into this installation. Uh, we uh, did the meta show, which was like the year end show for Ryerson University. Um, and it was, it went, you know, Great, it was lovely. People had great experiences with it. And what I started to notice through the exhibition process was it, like, I started to feel like psychoactive music became this thing that might grow beyond, um, you know, the art space. I found people were saying that they really wanted to use it, you know, as a therapeutic tool. Although I was using it for that, like, or I had vision for it to be done that way, it was more of still an art, art statement, right? Like, it was more of like a, you know, a statement on mental health and how, like, we have, you know, how it has become so you know, medicalized and psychiatrized and, and but, but what I started to learn was it, it was a little bit bigger than just an art, artistic statement. I mean, I think art has this lovely way to drive everyday life and, you know, change the way that we live. And I think this was a great opportunity for us to kind of expand past just, you know, the BFA and go into, you know, collaboration. Um, so through the process of building Lucid, we had this really great opportunity to collaborate with a lot of people at the school because this project took a lot of assistance, right? So we had fabrication help. We had people, you know, um, from even other, uh, you know, faculties like engineering come and help us out. And through that process, people have, you know, really were starting to get sold on the vision of what psycho psychoactive music could be. And um, and this it kind of allowed for this really nice recruiting process where we were able to kind of build, you know, a really great team. So one thing that we did after um, after this exhibition or after the meta exhibition was we. Um, we, we decided to turn the project into um, an actual studio or a project of sorts, and we applied to the um, Transmedia Zone Incubator at Ryerson University. And this incubator um, is solely focused on, you know, the creative arts or the creatives, you know, space and how that is going to like be changed in the in the next in the near future and how how you know it is evolving essentially. So this space has provided like provided us with studio space, a lot of you know resources, and here is where we built the Lucid team. And um, you know, I'm really proud to say that through this process, 
you know, we were able to create our studio, which is today, you know, is called just Lucid. Um, you know, and we're, our, our studio focuses on taking the psychoactive music and bringing it into the lives of, you know, everyday people and, you know, how, like, how can we use this to, you know, to improve the, you know, mental health landscape and to improve, you know, the listening, the music listening experience in general. So, uh, one thing before we continue is uh, we, uh, everybody here except for myself, or is it, are there other people involved? Yeah, so, so uh, as in the audience today, we have uh, Rial Sumpton, she's our public relations officer, and then uh, Gabriela Kyra, she's our chief designer. Um, we also have Zoe Thompson, who is our chief scientist, and we have a, our, like a graphic designer and several, like we have a couple installation artists that we work with just for exhibits and then a couple other research staff as well. So we have a total of eight full like office members. Um, there's, yeah, there's one business guy in there too, Flavi. He uh, helps keep us. And so what, what pays for all this to happen? So um, a lot of grants. Um, we, we were like through this process, we were- you guys are applying for those grants yourself yeah. or, the, or the university? Um, it was a little bit of both. So the university mm -hmm. has given us a lot of support being that we're through the incubator. They, they essentially help us with, like we're eligible for a lot of grants that you wouldn't have been if you weren't part of the incubator. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, there's a lot of Canadian funding that has been like funneled into these university incubation, in, incubation centers. Um, so that has given us funding. We have also had a lot of larger exhibits, which have been um, like highly profitable in terms of uh, payment, um, which I'll go over in a little bit. Um, we still do a lot of smaller um, installations and stuff as well, um, mainly because we have funding and we're able to accommodate that. Um, but larger museums have allowed us to kind of prosper in a, in a higher level as well. Um, and now that we're actually going into the mobility space, we're starting to get interest from investors and um, other stakeholders and people like that. So what is the mobility space? So like uh, we're, we're working on building an application for this, a mobile app, uh, something that people could okay. um, essentially do psychoactive music at home or in any setting. Um, and, um, you know, there's a lot of like social impact uh, funders who are really interested in, in, in helping us with that process because of the mental health landscape in, in general, essentially. Um, like one of the places, like our main uh, office space is the Center of Social Innovation in Toronto. And um, they, like their whole thesis is to, you know, help companies that have an impact to, you know, potentially change the way that we live in a positive way. Um, and we get a lot of support through that and a lot of, you know, resources and funding is uh, accessible through that as well. Um, but yeah, pretty much solely, I'd, I'd say most of our funding has come from government grants. We got Ontario Art Council funding, um, a bunch of other like Ontario government funding, um, and that kind of uh, build essentially. Um, so we're actually, yeah, we're all, get, we're all getting paid. I mean, it's minimum wage, but we're all getting paid, which is great. <laughs> and um, yeah, and we have a lot of support. I mean, Toronto, you know, although, you know, it is exhausting. It's nice to be up here because it's such a nice natural environment. Um, there is a lot of resources there for us um, and we probably couldn't exist if it wasn't for that. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's essentially where we are now. Um, you know, through the process of uh, like post thesis, we started to exhibit Lucid in a lot of different settings. Um, so this here is actually Maker Festival in Toronto, which was a really great experience for us. Um, you know, like going, like the Maker environment was really great. There's a lot of people who really into audio and really into you know these cool maker projects and we got a lot of support that way um, but what actually came what was a big breakthrough for us in terms of fin like financial stability was we got our first commissioned uh, exhibition which was the night shift exhibition in Kitchener it's a festival 
Um, and they paid us quite well. Uh, they, they were really intrigued by our, by our project. They had a lot of funding for, from Canada 150. I think that was like where they got a lot of their funding. And, um, and they paid us uh, handsomely to bring the exhibit to Kitchener, set up there. Um, and we were there for the full two-day festival. Um, and here, we got, uh, they, they actually did a reception, I think a couple months earlier, to announce all of the exhibitions. And there was a reporter from CBC who was there, and um, this is actually when we got our first national press coverage. So um, they heard the they heard about our project, and they actually gave us a call, and they invited us into um, to CBC Kitchener, and we did a live demo of Lucid um, or of psychoactive music on the air, um, which was great. I mean, that was it was a really fantastic experience for us, and then like the host like had some really lovely things to say about it. Um, but then after that, we started to get you know this huge influx of emails and. People, you know, really lovely stories, people who are, you know, had children with ADHD or people who had anxiety disorders um, and, you know, even a woman who was going through, um, you know, a second stage of cancer, you know, they, like, they, they were really identifying with the concept of, of just being able to listen to some music to try to help them relax a little bit, even if it was just for a short moment of time. Um, so because of that, the turnout at this festival was huge. Like we, we were fully booked, um, you know, very early on in, in, in each day. Um, you know, we had tons of users, like all of our best photos are of the users from Kitchener. They, they loved it. Like we had great experiences with them. Um, and this kind of really kicked it off for us. Uh, after this ex exhibition, we, you know, we started getting calls from different exhibitors. Um, you know, we did a TEDx event, um, which was a pretty big deal for us. They paid well as well. Um, Ryerson University hired us to represent them at a, at a variety of events. Um, and then our you know, this really led up to this pivotal exhibition for us, which was at the Ontario Science Centre. So the Ontario Science Centre was running this um, inventorium exhibit, uh, they were calling it, which was essentially a space where children could co-create experiences um, related to science. They really liked ours because, um, you know, they were essentially, you know, remixing music with their brain. And, and it also, you know, kind of spoke to this whole movement to educate children on mental health at a young age and try to get them to have positive relationships with their mental health. Um, being that we all grew up in a, you know, a world where it was very, you know, shunned or there was a lot of stigmas around it. So, um, so we were really open to the idea of, you know, being this exhib exhibition to kind of promote positivity around this. Um, and uh, it was also, you know, a great thing for our studio. It really helped us out a lot. Um, we also did a, it was our first custom build for, uh, for a museum. We actually created a couple exhibits on the side, um, which were completely focused on audio. They were really pushing like psychoacoustics and like us teaching people about the sound related to audio and, you know, how it works. So, um, so we spent a lot of time building educational materials, which was really exciting for me as an audio engineer to be able to, you know, push out some knowledge surrounding audio. Cause I feel like a lot of people just listen to music and don't really think about the acoustics and the, you know, the, the science behind it. Um, but yeah, it, the, through that process, it really helped us, you know, kind of uh, build us as a studio and also build our, you know, the psychoactive music uh, construct. Um, through this exhibition, we engaged with, I think it was like almost 2000 people came through the, through the couple of days. We had 300 direct users, being that it was a time-based piece, we can only do so many, um, but it was great. It was really good feedback for us. When did that happen? So that was early this year, so January 2018. Yeah, so not too long ago. Um, so, you know, this is when we started to realize, you know, that the experience was, you know, even becoming beyond, you know, exhibitions and, you know, the space. We started to brainstorm on how people could start to use 
lucid in um, you know in a personal setting because we got a lot of demands uh, from people saying you know how can I bring this home how can I you know hold on to this and actually listen to it you know in my living room um, so this is when the big design came to uh, create an app uh, you know as much as like everyone's making an app these days like obviously you know there's a lot of things that I was against making an app I think it was just the BFA thing like you know all of like our teachers were always against, you know, mobile platforms for some reason. But I, I, you know, I kind of put that at the door just because, like, I think the audience is the most important thing, and I think a lot of uh, academics forget that. <laughs> so, uh, so this is when you know we started to realize we have to take this really large experience and we wanted to condense it into a phone. Um, and you know, this is kind of what we've been working on for the last few months, which is going to be the Lucid app. Um, and it has come with a slew of challenges, uh, mainly computationally, uh, like Lucid became a full AI system, which it is now grown to, and running all that on a phone is becoming a challenge. Um, and also the audio quality. I mean, I was very liberal with large size files and all of these things. And so now I'm trying to figure out, you know, ways of, uh, of readjusting that. But essentially, you know, we're on this really exciting space to be taking psychoactive music in, you know, to the next level, something that can you know, connect with a lot of people and um, you know, something that we can spread to as many people as possible. Now, the other big thing that we've been learning through this process is people identify with a lot of different music, right? Um, so the traditional psychoacoustic or psychoactive music that we've been building since you know, the last three years has been very slow, very relaxing, because you know, we just you, know, you have this assumption that when people want to relax, that's how they want to do it, right? But um, we've been finding that, you know, we'll have a couple of kids here and there coming to our exhibitions who are like, well, I like heavy metal, right? So, so those people, you know, have been this really interesting challenge that we've been playing around with. And um, what I've decided to do, and I think is the, the best route of entry there, is instead of trying to compose music that I'm not able to compose, we've been collaborating with a lot of different musicians. So the psychoactive music construct has become now a protocol, essentially, that um, we've been able to apply to you know different different artists and different musicians, and it's it's now almost like a you know like a like an algorithm or a standard as opposed to it being just a single piece of art, which has been an interesting journey I guess through the process because you know through new media when I studied that at Ryerson like that's kind of how they were teaching it to us like in the sense of like art has become this ubiquitous thing that is like all around us right um, and it was such a hard concept an abstract concept as a you know, an undergrad to try to think of art that way. But it's really starting to click in now, this, this concept of, you know, it, it, you know, there's so many different art worlds or different spaces where art can exist. And, um, you know, that's kind of where I guess we are. And um, great. <laughs> so thank you. Um, that was Aaron Labay speaking in July 2018 at NASA North. You're listening to Making Waves, produced for WGXC Wave Farm by New Adventures in Sound Art. To take us to the end of the show, we're going to listen to Richard Leonhardt's White Knight. This piece was also presented last summer at Asa North in a show called Modular Tribute, which paid tribute to the late Richard Leonhardt. But as we transition now into winter, it is... Nice to think of the quiet winter nights that provide the setting for music such as this, which was composed in Albany during a snowstorm in 1974. Join us next month at this time for more Making Waves. <laughs> 